you know, I definitely felt um, from a pretty young age this need to push back against sort of the expectations of what it meant to grow up as a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, again, I never felt any any of that from my family, definitely felt just from, you know, whether it was school or society or, you know, the media, whatever it was, this sense that um, my aspirations, whether it was, you know, uh, to be president or whatever it might mm-hmm. be, weren't necessarily things that were just available to me. Well, we are here today with Dr. Melanie Korn, president of Columbus College of Art and Design. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you. It's Happy great. to be here. It's great to have you here. I'm going to read your bio for our audience before we get started. Dr. Melanie Korn is the fifth president of Columbus College of Art and Design. Since joining the college in 2016, Dr. Korn has made significant progress on the dual goals of building a national reputation for the college and strengthening CCAD's role as a leading cultural institution in the region. She has overseen the implementation of a three-year strategic plan, the construction of the new state-of-the-art Cloyd Family Animation Center, and an increase in new applicants and overall enrollment at the college. She's a member of the Columbus Partnership and the board of the Association of Independent Colleges of Art and Design. Dr. Korn was a 2017 and 2018 finalist for CEO of the Year from Columbus CEO and was named a member of Columbus Business's first Business First Power 100 list for 2019 and was a 2018 recipient of the Progressive Women Award from Smart Business. Prior to joining CCAD, Dr. Korn spent 13 years in academic administration at California College of the Arts. She received her bachelor degree in art history from Stanford University, a master's degree in art history from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a doctorate in higher education management from the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. <laughs> that's that's some great stuff. My, um, my son is uh, looking at colleges now and um, we were out in Santa Barbara this summer and uh, I know how beautiful it is. It's a beautiful place. And you've yeah. attended some pretty impressive uh, <laughs> colleges. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's awesome to have you here. And I want to talk to you about what you're up to at, at CCAD and, and in, in general in life. We've talked a lot about kind of some shared passions for mm-hmm. how to approach students today and and the mental health component of it. And uh, I want to kind of back up before we get into that and start um, from the beginning so that the audience can really start to understand who you are and and how you've arrived where you are. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, if you could just share a little bit about kind of your childhood, your upbringing, um, where did all of this begin? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So I grew up in um, Grays Lake and Gurney, Illinois, um, northern suburbs of Chicago. When I was out at Stanford, I would say I'm from Chicago, but anyone who knows Chicago uh, would never consider Gurney uh, anywhere near Chicago. It's about 40 miles north, uh, closer to Wisconsin, actually, though we don't like to tell people that. Um, And it was a very, I had a very idyllic sort of leave it to beaver you know, middle-class, Midwestern, suburban upbringing. I have one older brother, and um, we grew up there, again, in suburbia. 
I have um, two parents who are still married uh, today. Um, just celebrated their 50th anniversary a couple years ago, I guess. Today, today's mm. our anniversary. Wow. Yeah, 52nd anniversary today. Mm. And they were both Midwesterners, grew up in farm country in Southern Illinois. Both went to college, both got their master's degrees. Uh, my mom was a um, stay-at-home mom when I, when I was young and my brother was young. And then she went back to work and uh, she was a high school guidance counselor for many years. My dad was a um, community college biology teacher and then eventually became an administrator. He became a a dean um, of biological and health sciences. His specialty is reptiles and amphibians. Mm. So uh, I grew up with your typical family pets like dogs and cats, but also a room with cages with lizards and frogs and snakes and uh, for a while, we had an alligator. Uh, wow. So yeah, <laughs> my, that's my, fascinating. My dad was a—he uh, was the person for a couple counties that, um, if the police got a call from you know somebody saying there's a rattlesnake in my backyard or something, they would call my dad and he would come out. And it was never a rattlesnake because there are not rattlesnakes around there. But um, but one time there was a small uh, alligator that someone had sadly thrown out into the snow uh, in the winter and. So he saved the alligator and we had it for a little while before it uh, got a little too big for our home and then uh, went to the college and then eventually found its home in uh, a zoo. So, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I, you know, I, um, I had a good life and it was, uh, it was a pretty easy life. I will say I was privileged. Uh, we weren't, um, we weren't wealthy, but we were, you know, solidly middle-class and uh, a happy family. And I always, um, loved education. I, you know, having two parents who were kind of in education. Um, I, uh, when I was, when I was really little, I had many, uh, ideas of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, and they were pretty far ranging from, uh, wanting to be a Broadway star Mm -hmm. to wanting to be a lawyer to, you know, wanting to be the president of the United States. Uh, but, uh, but mostly I, uh, (laughs) apparently, apparently anyone can do it these days. (laughs) Right. But, uh, uh, you know, mostly I think my 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 real thoughts about my future were always kind of in academia. I saw mm-hmm. myself teaching or something. I didn't you know. Did you did see know. that kind of at an early age. I mean, you know, I hear that you're kind of, yeah. as, as we all do, flirting with, you know, a lot of things that right. we might want to do. But, right. you know, you felt like there was some calling towards education. There was, there was. And I think part of it, um, you know, when I can't say when I was really young, I was not... Uh, enlightened enough to think about it necessarily as sure, a right. calling. But I think part of it for me was, you know, I I liked uh, bossing my friends around and, you know, we played school and I liked writing the tests, uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. more than great, more than being the one taking them. Right. So, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but, but, it's, it, but, you know, it's interesting because those are like the little signs in hindsight, right? <laughs> right? I mean, right. sure, we're not awake enough at that age to really know, you know, some people, I guess, maybe sure. really know, but you look back and you think, yeah, I was actually the one that was giving the test. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And when, you know, when I, when I think about it, you know, I didn't, I mean, we, I would, I would much rather have played school than whatever, I don't know, cops and robbers or Mm -hmm. even house Mm -hmm. or whatever else you played when Mm -hmm. you were a little kid, you know, your imaginary games. And, and I, yeah, I did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And, you know, just liked the, I liked learning. I liked puzzles. I liked, um, you know, sort of that, the the many ways in which you kind of gather new information about the world. Um, I wasn't a big reader when I was really little, though. It took mm-hmm. me a while to kind of find um, my 
um, sort of passion for reading. I have to remember that. I have a 11-year-old son and he's mm-hmm. uh, not a big reader. Mm-hmm. And so I, wor- I worry about that sometimes. And then mm-hmm. I think, okay, I wasn't that big of a reader when I was you know, mm-hmm. in sixth grade either. Were, were you focused on your academics though? I was. And mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. Um, even though, again, I had two um, parents who both went to college, they didn't push me hard, but I was very self-motivated. So um, I... You know, school came pretty easy to me, um, at least, you know, for quite a while anyway. And, um, but I also was a very self-motivated person. I couldn't, you know, the idea of not turning something in or, uh, you know, getting a bad grade on something just uh, was kind of implausible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so I was, it wasn't, but it wasn't something I really felt from external pressures. Mm -hmm. And I don't know quite where it came from. Um, It was just, I don't know. It's kind of just how I was hardwired, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of just internal pressure. Um, but, it, you know, it, again, it didn't ever become overly burdensome, mm-hmm. and, you know, at least in my childhood and sort of, you know, through that. Um, it sounds like you were like in this pretty unique, you know, from most of the stories that I'm hearing, kind of idealistic in some ways life. Your mm-hmm. parents, you know, loving and supportive. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, you kind of uh, healthy in the way that you're thinking about your your yeah. schooling and and life in general. I mean, yeah. is that fair to say that it was a really very kind of um, you know nice and pleasant and happy childhood? It, yeah, it really was. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I had challenges in life, and we, sure. we can get to those. But yeah. but my childhood was um, was very. Uh, you know, I the first word that popped to my mind is normal, but I think that's not the right word because I think, unfortunately, it's not normal enough, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and But I think it was very, that kind of, uh, you know, stereotypical kind of idyllic childhood in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, yeah. You know, of course, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, I want to hear about, you know, what wasn't perfect, but I think it's great to kind of elevate just that, like, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> right, know, right. right, Because like you said, it's <laughs> it's kind of not normal, right. right? Even though, you know, there might be a time where we would have called it that. Yeah. Um, and But but yet, you know, it was your experience and, and um, that's wonderful, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. kudos to your parents and to you and to your environment and everything that allowed for that. And let's celebrate it. Right. I, you know, there's, there's, I think you know, a little bit of an attachment towards like, well, I was traumatized, right? Sure. And and that's real. I mean, those those yeah. are real things. You know, I've personally had a, a, some traumatic uh, upbringing in childhood and, and you know, we, I talk about it here and, yeah. and many of our guests do too, but my wife um, grew up kind of similar to you. Her parents have been married for over 50 years. And she would describe, you know, her family as unconditional love and, mm-hmm. you know, sure wasn't without its challenges, but, but pretty damn normal and right. good. And I think people need to know like, Hey, that's okay. Yeah. You know, no need to hide from that. Like, <laughs> right. you know, good for you. Isn't that what we're all trying to do yeah. Uh, yeah. for our own families? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, being a parent, it, is a time where you often end up reflecting back on your own childhood and, you know, the parenting that you received. And I think that, you know, I would venture to say that all of us who are parents um, model our parenting to a certain degree on the way in which we were parented, either as a, you know, repetition of that or a counter to that. Um, And, you know, I think that's the case for, you know, for many of us. And for me, it was very much, um, you know, again, um, trying to maybe 
find new ways to be engaged, you know, with my kids and in ways that maybe not all parents were in the 80s, you know, when I grew up. But at the same time, I think by and large, most of um, the parenting that I received was really positive and definitely unconditional love. And, um, you know, I I, um, always got the message that I could do what I wanted to do and go where I wanted to go for college. And, you know, and, um, and that was, um, that was never anything that was sort of a, a, you know, questionable or anything I ever had to doubt. And that's Mm. a really great thing. Yes, it is. No question about it. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges, moments that you can kind of point to that really were challenging, that weren't perfect, that did kind of help shape you at this early stage. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind? Part of it was, again, not so much from my family, but just from um, society, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm um, uh, a, definitely a kid of the 80s. I'm a Gen Xer. And, you know, I grew up um, in a time where um, things were changing in terms of, um, you know, equal rights and gender. But at the same time, it wasn't perfect. And so you know, I definitely felt um, from a pretty young age this need to push back against sort of the expectations of what it meant to grow up as a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, again, I never felt any any of that from my family, definitely felt just from, you know, whether it was school or society or, you know, the media, whatever it was, this sense that um, my aspirations, whether it was, you know, uh, to be president or whatever it might mm-hmm. be, weren't necessarily things that were just available to me. Mm. Um, and so I, I felt this um, kind of early pressure to push back against that. You know, I think the other thing that pops to mind, and this is a really strange one because it really isn't, it's not a, it's not a very personal fear, but something that hung over me a lot, I think, as again, a kid of, of my age um, was, this is, I haven't thought, thought about this in a long time, but from an early age, I had a big fear of nuclear war. Hmm. And let me say more about that. <laughs> yeah, no, th- this is great because um, almost inevitably on every interview, somebody says what you just said, which is, you know, <laughs> I haven't thought about this a long time. Yeah. And I always find it to be so good. Like there's so right. much there. So like, right. yeah, please tell me. <laughs> so I just, I remember, um, you know, I, my, I mean, my, my mom would talk about, um, you know, being a kid in the, um, you know, 50s uh, doing sort of these absurd, uh, you know, bomb drills in the school where, you know, they would hide under the desk as though that was going to protect them from a nuclear bomb. And mm-hmm. obviously by the 80s, we weren't doing that. Uh, we realized there was no hope. <laughs> but, it, it's uh, funny. I mean, my my kids, you know, it, it's not funny, but um, I think it's maybe Chappelle or somebody does like a, a, a bit on this, you know, where it's like, we're doing these school yeah, you know, trainings, yeah. shooter trainings, and they, they, Chappelle's bit is like we're training the shooter. He's in the room right. during the training, right? Right, like exactly. Um, you know, it, yeah. it is kind of funny how, yeah. um, and I mean, there's nothing funny about this, but it's ironic how we are training people what we think we're reacting to right. in these situations. We have these you know, realities and these fears and we do the best we can. And I don't know, I just, you know, hearing your- Yeah, yeah. it's, but it was weird. I just, I feel like it was not this, you know, it wasn't something that I like worried about on a conscious level every day, but I feel like I, from the time that I was pretty little until, I don't know, probably 
high school, maybe by the time you kind of get over it and worry about, you know, you become a little bit more self-centered even and worry about things that more immediately impact you. But um, but for a lot of my childhood, I really had this weird um, just kind of fear that, you know, we were going to end up in nuclear war any time now. Mm-hmm. And that was it. It was all over. And there was this there was this sort of inevitability to it that was um, frightening. And I think it, I think it kind of also influenced that kind of generational cynicism, I think a little bit of, you know, Gen X. Um, mm-hmm. And that definitely impacted me in a, in an interesting way. Um, the kind of just that, that sense of, um, uh, I don't know, distrust in, you know, uh, global politics mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and the fear that um, at any, you know, it could just be any second. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, while that dissipated, then of course, you know, we end up with these other larger, you know, global fears that are probably more uh, threatening to our world, but sort of slower burning, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's a uh, global climate change or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but I digress. But anyway. Um, yeah. So I, that's interesting. So, you, so this, this kind of nuclear war yeah. fear, this like, end of the world kind of um, messaging that's like creeping in is starting to both shape you, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, in this like cynicism about what, you know, global politics might do, right? Mm -hmm. Like push the button, like how does the power, you know, kind of get to this point where that's where we are, where, right? That's possible. And then also maybe some kind of just like unease or fear about Mm -hmm. like the reality of that, like that that at any moment, you know, this could all go away. Is that that latter part true also? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, as a kid, I definitely had that kind of um, fear. You know, I didn't, again, I grew up in a very um, idyllic, safe environment. So I didn't fear for my safety and well-being. in a sort of close personal way, you know, um, but I maybe, maybe there's just this natural need as a kid who is coming to um, understand, you know, life and mm-hmm. death that you have to sort of figure out what that looks like for you. And for me, it manifested in this uh, perhaps more, I don't know, bizarre way of, you know, thinking about the the world in a bigger in a bigger scale. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing and, you know, maybe a thread that will follow, you know, kind of as we hear your story play out, but you know, I personally believe that these kind of attachments that mm-hmm. we, you know, experience early on and the stories that we tell ourselves about it, they do really influence us to some degree as we move on, you know, through our lives. Mm-hmm. Um in some cases maybe they kind of run unconsciously and then maybe, and, and, you know, are serving us. And at some point they might not serve us. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to kind of hear how that plays out, but I wanted sure. to kind of back out, back up to this um, part about kind of, you know, what it was supposed to be like to be a girl yeah. and, you know, specifically for you kind of, was it just the kind of societal limitations relative to, um, what you, what options were available mm-hmm. or, you know, how else did that kind of play out for you um, yeah. in your, in your, you know, kind of growing up years? Yeah, I think um, that was definitely part of it, of just thinking about the future and, you know, what those options were, but it was more than that. It also, I think, impacted the way I lived my life. Um, I remember this moment when I was um, probably six um, and uh, you know, we used to run around, of course, in the neighborhood and 
you know, all over. And, and um, I was sick. I was five or six. And so like every other kid in the neighborhood was running around in my shorts with no shirt on. And I remember this moment where this neighbor across the street, this, you know, at the time she seemed like this old lady, but who knows, you know, she could have been my age. Um, but uh, she, I remember- It's funny you know, how that happens, I know, right? isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember her, you know, over like across the street, over in her yard, yelling over to me, you know, chastising me, telling me I to put a shirt on, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I still remember that. It was very jarring. And, um, and again, it's a little thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it really impacted me. It obviously mm-hmm. stuck with me. Sure. Um, and just this notion that, you know, I was a child. I mean, mm-hmm. oh my God, who cares? You right, know? Like, totally. I was a small child. And, right. and yet it was this moment of, okay, my freedom is now inhibited mm-hmm. um, because I can't do what the other kids are doing. Mm-hmm. And things like that, I think definitely, they're not things that I think ultimately held me back, mm-hmm. um, but they're things that I found myself pushing against mm-hmm. from an early age. Questioning. Um, yeah, questioning and yeah. being you know angry about Why it. Why is that? Right, right. right. Yeah. And, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah. five or six years old, you know? Right. I mean, and, and I'm just, you know, kind of projecting that, the woman is like thinking she's doing what she's supposed to be right. doing, right? Right. That you're a girl, you should have a shirt on. Right. And that she comes from some sort of generational right. thing, right? right? Where right. that was like the obvious thing to be saying, yet right. like it lands with you yeah. in a way that like at that age really like is like, you know, in my worldview, like a push from mm-hmm. the universe, like, hey, right? I'm going to like yeah. get this into your your body, right? So you understand, you know how to shift here. I, right. I don't know if that's you know fair, but yeah, you know, that's just kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's always remarkable to me how so many of the things. I think part of the point you're making is that so many of the things that become these, whether they are conscious or unconscious, major sort of shifts in our life that push us in a direction often to the other people involved are inconsequential. Right. You know, I mean, this interaction probably lasted, you know, three seconds. And I'm sure this woman, if she's still alive, has no clue that this ever happened. happened. Because why would she? It was a throwaway comment. Right. And yet for me, it's something that, you know, 40 years later, I remember Mm -hmm. and, you know, and sticks with me. And, Mm -hmm. um, And definitely, you know, in some small way, pushed me and shifted Mm -hmm. me and shifted me into this, you know, under sort of one of the first, I guess, moments that I understood that I was different because Mm -hmm. I was a girl and that therefore I was not supposed to do certain things or, you know, have the same access to certain things. And, and that, you know, like I hadn't, you don't think about that necessarily as a little, little, little child. And Mm -hmm. so those moments where that comes into consciousness, I think are really impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So connect the dots a little bit. So, you know, it's a pretty early stage moment, right? So you have that, mm-hmm. you're, you know, kind of getting messaging uh, from your family about, mm-hmm. you know, what appears to be kind of really healthy, honoring yourself. You've got some, yeah. um, s- some, some interest and intrigue with education. Um, there's this kind of fear, right? right that's there about um, kind of a nuclear yeah. war, you yeah. know, global politics. Pol- political climate. How does that start to play out for you? You know, how, how do you start to kind of connect this 
these, and I think that's kind of significant that you've got this kind of mm-hmm. underlying fear and this maybe kind of little poke around what it's like to be a woman. Right. Um, you know, tell me a little bit of how that starts to play out as you start to move through high school and yeah. on to college. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, it was always this push and pull, I think a little bit. So, um, you know, again, <clears throat> you know, I want to underscore that by and large, um, much of this is sort of in reflection um, because at the time, you know, you're just living life and it was all pretty good. But, right. um, but I think that, um, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was definitely an overachiever. I was very involved. I you know, got straight A's and was in band and art and drama and, you know, lots of different creative things. I, um, I, uh, was not a big sports person by the time I got to high school. I had my other my other interaction with somebody who probably has no clue that <laughs> this ever happened <clears throat> was, um, uh, and I've said this to some of my friends before, but um, I played basketball in junior high. I wasn't that good, you know, but I was okay. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of 12-year-olds. How good can you be? Mm-hmm. And um, my, I was sitting, you know, how when you're getting called in to go in, you kind of go crouch by the coach, kind mm-hmm. of waiting by the table to you right. know, get go in on a whistle or whatever. And mm-hmm. so I'm crouching there and it's, there's like, you know, two minutes left in the game. And I often was in for like the last two minutes of the game when we were either winning well enough or losing well enough that it didn't matter. Yes. And so the coach, not my coach, but it was like the other coach who was sitting there. She said to me, joking, so she seemed, uh, you know, you're only going in because your parents are here. Mm. And I remember like, of course the whistle blows, you go in, I play, and I remember like rushing to the dressing room, grabbing my, you know, stuff and rushing out and, and like bursting into tears. And I was not one who cried or was not very dramatic. And my parents were like, what is going on? What happened? Yeah. You know, and I remember it was the only time in my life that my dad ever intervened mm-hmm. because, you know, we, I mean, nowadays, right. We, mm-hmm. <laughs> our generation has moved unfortunately a little too far into the overparenting and you know over we, we, uh, over intervening but <laughs> not afraid to advocate <laughs> yeah exactly yes. but back then that didn't happen much and yeah. my dad would never do that mm-hmm. but this one time i remember he was so angry mm-hmm. he like that evening you know found this woman's phone number like and mm-hmm. called her and chewed her out and mm-hmm. um <laughs> but but anyway that <laughs> This, that also, of course, still sticks with me. And it was kind of the end of my sports career. Mm -hmm. You know, not that I was ever going to be a great athlete, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it definitely was this moment of like, well, okay, then forget that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm, you know, excelling in creative areas and, and Mm -hmm. enjoying that. And, um, you know, why keep trying in sports if, uh, you know, if that's the sort of attitude I'm getting from you know, supposedly uh, adults who are supposed to be supporting Mm -hmm. you, your coaches. Yeah. Um, I mean, and again, like, these moments, right? right? Like that that woman. Right. Hit, and right? I think, you know, of course, she was like, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Right, you know? right. And she didn't, I'm sure she didn't really mean anything by it, you know, but still like what a yeah, terrible thing to say to a, a child. Not a you know? to say to a yeah, child. I think, yeah. you know, we often forget that children are children. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And these things can really yeah. um, be impactful and, right. and move you. Now, you know, my belief is, you know, nothing is lost. Nothing is right. wasted. Right. So, Maybe, maybe it was like uh, exactly what you, right. you know, needed <laughs> right. to hear. Yes, you know? I'm sure it was because right? I sure was did not need to be pursuing basketball in high school. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's still not right, no. you know, right? But like, you know, if if everything is happening yeah. for our benefit, 
then you know yeah. um, you're getting this little uh, you know nudge again to kind yeah. of maybe move into what is actually yeah. Yeah. lighting you up. Absolutely. So, so tell me a little bit about that. I'm curious. You know the the kind of creative part of yeah. you, how that um, was emerging, or where that started, and how yeah. that started to take shape. Yeah. So I. Um, you know, I, even in junior high, um, I was involved in drama and, um, and art and, and I really enjoyed it. My older brother also, um, was an artist, um, a visual artist and ended up becoming a graphic designer and web designer. You know, I'm not quite sure where it came from. My parents are, again, they're not anti-art, but they're not artistic per se, really. My mom, you know, I think later in life became more artistic. She quilts and things like that, but Mm. I didn't really... The collection of amphibians wasn't exactly no right. I grew up, you know, when we went to uh, when we went on family vacations, it was um, history, you know, spots because mm-hmm. my mom likes history, and you know, the science and industry museum and the mm-hmm. zoo, not so much the art museum. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, I came to really enjoy the arts, and again, found it to be a place where I could um, excel, and um, and I. Even though I ended up um, president of a visual art college, uh, my my strength, I think, was actually more in the performing arts. Um, I really enjoyed uh, drama, and you know, I, I sort of enjoyed the um, the stage, uh, both in terms of um, acting, but also just the production. And you know, I liked the sort of collaborative um, environment of it. I mm-hmm. think you know, um, visual arts. Um, at least traditionally, I think it's changing, but traditionally can be a little bit um, isolating sometimes. It can be, it's very often a very kind of solo practice. Um, And I enjoyed the more kind of communal, I think, uh, environment of, um, you know, the theater kids and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being part of that group. um, And it was a lot of fun. But I think in high school for me, you know, there was, again, this, um, you know, I got plenty of affirmation and praise and again, did well. you know, I was never the most popular kid, but I had a great group of friends and never felt unpopular. You know, I was, um, I, I, um, I had a, a, my, you know, my group, my people. And yet there were always these moments where no one was um, sort of, for the most part, you know, with an exception, um, was sort of actively pushing me sort of beyond, you know, beyond the expectations either, you know, just sort of of my, you know, middle class suburban community or beyond, you know, the expectations of me as a girl. And, you know, I think it's all, I don't know exactly what it was, but, um, you know, most people in my high school um, either went on to the community college or to, you know, um, a state school in Illinois. There weren't a lot of people actively saying like, hey, you could go here or go there. Mm-hmm. And both of my parents, you know, did their um, undergraduate education at Eastern Illinois University again, they had great education and, and wonderful people, but they weren't, um, you know, they weren't out there sort of actively pushing me to, you know, go to Stanford mm-hmm. or anything. But but somehow, and I don't, again, I don't, I'm not quite sure where, but somehow as a kid, I decided I want to go to Harvard. Okay. And, um, and I don't know why, but I just, you know, you- It's not a bad choice. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you hear that name out there mm-hmm. in the world and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to yeah. Harvard. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this um, freshman history teacher who- his son went to Harvard and um, he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and helped me study for the SAT because I didn't really, you know, I, and kind of said, here's some things you need to do if you want to go to Harvard. Because again, 
perfectly nice high school guidance counselor, but he was not. I mean, he was basically like, well, if you're really smart, maybe you can go to Northwestern, you right. know, which is a great school. But right. like, there was no sense of anything beyond Illinois. Right. You know, that would be weird. Who, right. you know, why would you leave Illinois and go but, to college? But you were serious. You, you had serious, Harvard yeah. and you yeah. really want to know yeah. how to get there. Right, right, yeah. I was. And I, again, and I don't know why. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but I just, that was my goal and mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. And I- It's Harvard. I mean, it's, you know, right. it's yeah, like it's not saying a, you want to be president, right? right. <laughs> like These are things you want to do. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to go to Harvard. <laughs> um, and so my parents were, you know, they were like, okay, they were just supportive, but they didn't really know what to do to support me in that. So- so, but that's also great. Like it's not, yeah. you know, a thing to kind of, you know, miss. You know, your parents were like, okay, right? Right. Um, right. Not like, come on, you can't do right. that. Right, right. You know. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, no, they were very supportive. Um, and so um, Mr. Bryant, um, the history teacher and his wife, who also um, taught at the high school, she taught math. The two of them gave me some tutoring and just some advice on, you know, SAT and on um, applications for colleges. And I remember sort of like applying to a number of different schools. You know, I applied to Harvard, I applied to Brown and, and, you know, my mentor was like, oh, you should apply to Stanford. And I didn't, you know, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it really. And spent um, any time in California? No, no. When I was three years old, we took Mm -hmm. a road trip to San Diego to Mm -hmm. visit my mom's college friend. That was my only time I've ever been to California. You definitely did not have your shirt on <laughs> no, at that point exactly. in your life. Yes. No, I did not. <laughs> but I did not uh, have a great memory of California yes, from then. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I applied. Um, I did not get into Harvard. Um, sad to say. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> You've um, been there though, right? Right. I mean, but we, I've, we've yeah, spent at least exactly. a few days there. Right. So I can say I've studied at Harvard yes, now. I, yeah. I often <laughs> tell my kids, I've been to Harvard. Right. Exactly. I went to Harvard, I right. say. Yes. There you go. You know, it's only for good. a few yeah. days, but I did go there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I did get into Stanford. And I remember, you know, getting this acceptance and just thinking like, oh crap, like now what am I going to do? <laughs> because I had never been to Stanford. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, so it was, it was Easter weekend. Um, and so my mom was like, well, if you're serious about this, we should probably go see Stanford. Mm-hmm. And so my mom and I bought these like, you know, cheap Southwest tickets that had us stopping like in four stops across the country. And we, <laughs> you know, like finally get there and, and we're driving through the Bay Area and I had you know, never been to the Bay Area and mm-hmm. we flew into Oakland and, you know, mm-hmm. I had to like get across the bridges to get mm-hmm. to, <laughs> over to Stanford. And I remember we got there and it was like twilight, you know, on like sort of sundown on um, Saturday. And Stanford, compared to the universities I was used to, so, you know, my brother went to University of Illinois and I'd spent some time there, you know, um, and I was used to Midwestern college campuses, right? Big grassy quad, open Mm -hmm. places. I get to Stanford and it's this like crazy alien landscape, you know, with Mm -hmm. all of these like, brown grasses mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like everything is, you know, in that kind of California mm-hmm. drought and you drive in this palm drive with the, you know, lined with palm trees, but everything else is a sort of like eucalyptus mm-hmm. and everything is Spanish style. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's very foreign yeah. to the Midwest. Sure. Um, and I remember just um, having this, a bit of a panic attack and thinking, what was I thinking? Like, I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm this Midwestern suburban mm-hmm. kid. You know, I, I got into Northwestern too. Maybe I should just go to Northwestern because mm-hmm. this is crazy. I can't, I can't come out here. Yeah. And then 
uh, we were driving around. There's this, it's called Circle Drive and it kind of is, you know, has this ring around campus. And so we're driving around it, just trying to kind of take in the sights before we were going to do a tour or something in the morning. And, um, and uh, I remember like driving and looking across um, the sort of air, lawn area. And there was this girl dragging a keg <laughs> to this party. And I remember having this moment of like, oh, like the sigh of relief. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> like they're just normal you know, uh-huh. kids, right? They're just college students. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, it's like, I was not that kid at all. Like, but yeah. you know, I don't think I ever went to a frat party in my entire life in college yeah. and was not really a big like you know, party kid. Right. But there was something about this girl, again, this girl who never even knew I existed, yeah. who was another one of those moments where she was really meaningful to me because mm-hmm. it was this, this reassurance that this like, you know, normal, plain, Midwestern, mm-hmm. middle-class kid, not from a fancy school or a fancy family, uh, could go to this fancy school and be okay. Yeah. Because there were just normal kids there going to a kegger. Yeah, there was something you know. about it that represented you. <clears throat> yeah. You know, right. funny enough, right? Because <laughs> right. like, that wasn't exactly what you were doing. Right. But you connected a dot there that was yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Uh, I can I can relate to these people. Yeah, they you know they must be more like me than I realized. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And it's so funny. I mean, you know, especially how we make decisions right. at that time. Right. right? I, know. You know, I know. I mean, I've been on on these college tours with my son, and you know, I I'm seeing kind of you know yeah. his process and how you you know a good guide. You know, right. it, it, it so many little tiny things. Um, we're trying to do the math on yeah. and come to some conclusions about yeah. what's right. And, you know, there right. you are. I mean, that's a pretty big leap, Yeah, you know, yeah. from your Midwestern, all right. the kind of, you know, stories and, and you know, unlikelihoods, you know, yeah. exposure to people really going that far away and going to California. Yeah. It, it might sound today like it's not that big of a deal, but really, you know, what I'm hearing is you're breaking a, a mold, a pretty yeah. serious mold um, in your community, in yeah. your family, and in your society, and in yourself, right? Right. right. And you know, uh, the 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 funny part is, you know, the the girl dragging the right. keg is the thing that really gets you <laughs> right. to break that yeah. mold. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I graduated with oh, somewhere between three hundred fifty and four hundred students, about, and. Um, you know, I think like, I know that there was one kid in my class who went to Arizona State University and a few kids who went to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, just a few miles away. But honestly, I don't like, that's about it, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of people leaving the state for college. Um, and they're just, it just wasn't something you did. And, you know, again, it's not, um, um, you know, I had honors classes and AP classes. It wasn't like I was, um, you know, overcoming these tremendous odds, but it just was, again, something that, wasn't ex- expected and something that wasn't really, um, uh, you weren't being pushed toward that. And so mm-hmm. it was something that I had to really kind of do more on my own and take some initiative. And um, and it was scary when I finally figured that out. Sure. Um, you know. and, and were you planning at that point to study art and art history? I mean, no. How did that kind yeah. of start to take shape? Yeah. So um, another one of these memories, I you know, um, I remember, so I was at Stanford, I got there. You know, the first week um, when you get there, you don't 
Um, at Stanford, you um, register for classes right at the beginning of the semester as opposed to beforehand. Like most colleges, you have this kind of ability to shop around for the first week. And so I, you get assigned a freshman advisor sitting there with him and a group of other students going through like, okay, here are the classes I'm going to take. And, um, you know, and he's kind of going through and he's saying, oh, okay, well, so you, you know, took the AP calculus test so you could take calculus 2B. And I was like, uh, okay, okay, you know. And I remember him sort of pausing and saying, well, you don't have to. And there was this moment of like, oh, I don't have to? Because, I mean, <laughs> I was good at math, but I had no desire to take calculus 2B, mm-hmm. whatever the hell that was. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't enjoy calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it was, again, one of those moments where I was like, oh, I'm, this is different. I'm in college right. now. I can do what There's I want. Choice. There's choice. And right. so I can do the things that I like yeah, to do or study yeah, what I want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was this great moment. And so he, asked me, well, what do you like? What do you want to do? And, you know, and I had taken art classes and, and I really enjoyed in high school in both my studio art classes and also my European history class. Those um, teachers would incorporate art history, just kind of, you know, some lessons in art history. Um, and I always loved those and I loved those moments. And so I said something about that. And so he said, oh, you should take this art history class with this professor, Jody Maxman. She's great. Um, and so I did. And it was, um, she she taught ancient uh, art history, so Greek and Roman. And it was this kind of three some three quarter class. And the first quarter was sort of the most boring. It was like not even yet to the Parthenon. You know, it was like pottery shards and, you know, sort of pre-classical Greek art history. But she was phenomenal. She mm. was just one of those teachers who was an incredible storyteller. Mm. So kind and funny and smart. And Mm -hmm. I ended up taking all three quarters, you know, of ancient art history with her, you know, just loved her. And um, that was the end of that. It kind of like, it just sold me on it. And I think, you know, what I came to love about art history um, is that art is both a reflection of the culture in which it is created, but also a mover and shaper of that culture. Mm. And so the thing that I think I loved most about art history was more so even than the kind of um, formalist, you know, sort of uh, analysis of paintings. And, you know, I did, I did plenty of that when I got into studying modern, modern art. And, but what I loved the most really was the social history of art, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the history, the politics, the, mm. the identity, you know, all of that, that is embedded in art. Um, and the way in which, again, art, you know, is this incredible historical record and commentary on a time, but also you can look back at these moments and say, um, you know, this work of art or this movement of art or this group of artists um, changed the course of the future, mm-hmm. you know, by sort of the way in which they influence society. And that's awesome. And yeah. that was, it's just really fun. And so I just, I loved it and I loved studying it. And um, and so, you know, that's what I did all through college as mm-hmm. I really kind of, um jumped into that um, with, with full force and uh, move forward with that. Mm. Yeah, so um, uh, it's that's wonderful. And I'm kind of like still connecting to this, you know, kind of childhood where yeah. you are also getting these early, um, you know, nods, nudges towards, you know, this, this you know, career that you have now mm-hmm. where, you know, and this is just my, you know, kind of um, connections, what I'm hearing, but, you know, again, you've got these kind of concerns yeah. about, you know, political climates and, and you know, end of life and, right. you know, what it's like to be a woman. And, yeah. and you know, then you're studying and you're seeing all that history, yeah. the creation 
right? And how it's being document, documented yeah. through a creative process. Tell me a little bit about now, here you are, and, and, and it's, you know, makes sense that you come back to the Midwest. Right. Um, I think, I don't know, it's yeah. pretty dreamy in California, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I know that you, you know, spent a lot of wonderful years there, but yeah. you, you come back to Columbus, to the Midwest, um, to take your role at CCAD. And I'm curious kind of a little bit about, you know, kind of that thought process and what energized you about that. But also I want to hear a little bit about kind of what your creation is now. Yeah. You know, you're a creative, yeah. right? And, and I'm even thinking, you know, as I'm hearing you say that you like the production and the drama, I'm kind of curious, you know, what is it now mm-hmm. that is your vision um, for CCAD mm-hmm. and how you're using all of this life experience to create from your yeah. current position? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I'll, you know, I'll very quickly just fast forward from college to here. And so, you know, I ended up going on to graduate school, thought I was going to be an academic, thought I was going to go be a art history professor mm-hmm. and kind of quickly realized through a number of turns of events that I didn't love the, the solitary work of uh, being a scholar. You know, um, I wasn't very good at it either. And, you know, in that I was not one who was going to sit around by myself and just like write a book and have mm-hmm. someone check in six months later and it was going to be done. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a much more, um, again, kind of communal worker, I think, mm-hmm. and, um, and enjoy being part of a, of a community in that way. Um, and so I had an opportunity to um, kind of move into some academic administrative work and um, quickly found, um, you know, pretty early, I mean, when I was still in my late 20s, that um, that, that was really um, powerful for me and that I was good at it, um, mm-hmm. but that I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed still being part of the educational environment and the educational mission, but not having my role in that be, again, of that kind of, you know, solitary contributor in terms of, um, mm-hmm. you know, creating new knowledge through mm-hmm. books, et cetera. Yeah, it, um, it, it's interesting because, you know, most people are going into an art program to be an artist of some kind, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? But you are really feeling the the kind of passion or energy of actually being more as an administrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so I worked at California College of the Arts, another art, you know independent art and design college, for about thirteen years um, on uh, mostly in the academic administration. Um, I did teach along the way, and I love teaching. It's again, it's very performative, you know. Mm-hmm. So I liked it's it's my stage, uh, mm-hmm. but um, but you know that is just kind of a you know part time gig, really. I mean, what I really you know have did most of my time at at um, California College of the Arts was be an administrator, and and that led me back here. And so I had a opportunity to say, okay, um, I've kind of done all I can do at CCA at my former institution, and what I was looking for when I came to CCAD was a place to continue my passion for arts education. So even though I um, had a very kind of traditional liberal arts education um, in my 13 years at um, California College of the Arts, I became a passionate advocate for the power of um, studio education, for arts education. It's really incredible. Um, you know, I think um, it's similar to, you know, architecture school and other other disciplines where you know, you spend your time um, in 
uh, sort of deep um, process with often a very small group of students. Um, there's this sort of constant iteration and reiteration that's part of the design practice. You are required to kind of get up and defend your work and go through this critique process um, in a way that I never was as an art historian. You know, you you write a paper, you turn it in at the end of the semester, and you know maybe you get some comments from the teacher, but you never sit down in front of your class and say, well, this is my work. I'm going to defend this work to you. And, you know, now you're going to critique it. And now I'm going to go back and continue to perfect it. And that's a really powerful way of educating um, that is at the core of what happens in an art and design classroom. Um, and I love that. And so I wanted to stay in that environment. Um, and so I also, though, wanted to come back to the Midwest. So my parents and my brother and his family are still in Chicago suburbs. Um, I did love California. It's a great place. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, after 23 years or so in California, um, I was um, I was tired, frankly. I mean, mm-hmm. the Bay Area is a hard place to live right mm-hmm. now. Um, the cost of living is crazy. The traffic is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless you're really wealthy, you can't afford to live someplace that's incredibly safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you probably have to pay for private school if you're going to live in one of those not incredibly safe, mm-hmm. you know, areas. And, um, and so... I wanted, frankly, just a little bit easier of a life. Mm. And my son was eight. And, you know, again, we lived in a wonderfully diverse neighborhood, but it wasn't a neighborhood that he could just, I couldn't just open the door and say, come back in an hour. Mm -hmm. And here I can. And so, you know, that was, I think, important for me too, to to provide him an opportunity to just have that freedom Mm -hmm. um, uh, that I, you know, wish for all children. So CCAD in particular, though, I think what attracted me about CCAD was not just the fact that it was another art and design college, but the fact that um, I, I knew CCAD through, you know, we're all kind of connected, this network of mm-hmm. independent colleges of art and design. So I knew it, and I was really impressed by CCAD's ability to value and hold its strength in art, in fine art, in liberal arts. Um, but still prioritize and push for um, the sort of professional opportunities in the creative economy. So I think sometimes there can be this tension between, you know, art for the sake of art and education for the sake of education and professional outcomes. And at CCAD, I think um, I saw that already they were doing a pretty good job of balancing those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I really believed in and something mm-hmm. I wanted to help push forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, so that's definitely been one of the things that we've been focusing on is, you know, how do we um, prepare our students for success in the creative economy? I think that, again, I'm, you know, I'm, big, I'm a big believer in the idea that it would be wonderful if everyone could just go to college because going to college is great. It makes mm-hmm. you a better person. It makes you a better citizen. But I also understand that that's a pretty privileged point of view mm-hmm. um, and that college is expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, over 40% of our students are low-income students, you know, Pell Grant eligible low-income students. I owe it to them and CCAD owes it to them to, to demonstrate and live up to, uh, you know, an ROI, the, you know, what's the return on their investment in this education? Um, and so... You know, so I don't think we can just sit back and say, like, just study art because it's wonderful. Right. Um, no, and, and I'm, this is great. So yesterday I interviewed Mandy Kasky. I don't mm-hmm. know if you, you know Mandy. So she went to CCAD mm-hmm. um, for a couple of years and then 
um, she, as she described it, um, smoked enough pot um, <laughs> that she, uh, and fell in love with a guy who introduced her to graffiti. Yeah. And, you know, as it turns out now that led to, you know, a career for her as a muralist. Sure. And, you know, we were talking and there's others, um, rather severe did their, um, large portrait here at Gravity. You know, there's a lot of working artists in this community here in Franklinton. Mm-hmm. Not enough. It's yeah. still challenging, but it, it feels like, you know, as you see a a, a banana with duct tape, you know, <laughs> sell for you know hundred thousand right. dollars or whatever, right? That um, there is really a kind of resurgence, maybe in um, the value of art. Yeah. Um, and you know, not just the value monetarily, but kind of as a profession, as yeah. a career, right? That these are kind of becoming the rock stars, right? Um, you know, Instagram, and you know, just kind of where we are, maybe at this point in time. Yeah. You know, that there's a there's a real opportunity for people to make a living and and you know, really be revered. Um, and, and not so much maybe in the kind of technically trained education mm-hmm. that we used to have, you know, right. I know for myself, I was very connected to the experience of art in high school. Mm-hmm. And most of it had to do with kind of the feeling of being creative and the feeling about uh, a feeling of being with other people that were creative. But what I was being taught really kind of like your basketball story, uh, the messaging I got that was that I wasn't good, mm-hmm. right? Because it was so formal, yeah. right? Yeah. Paint between the lines, do this uh, exercise or right. we're going to do this, you know, portion of whatever. And I wasn't really as skilled as some of the other kids in the room. Yeah. I now am painting and I'm realizing like creation is what really matters. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I believe we're kind of all born to be creative. Um, but I'm guess, I guess I'm kind of curious, you know, both, you know, what your feelings are on whether right. or not we're all born that way. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, how it is, in your role and with the university that you are trying to honor this kind of new way of being creative and how that might really um, be getting elevated in our world in a way that I think has, you know, profound potential. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think I totally agree with you. I do feel like, um, you know, everyone is born with creative potential. I think. I think that, you know, just like some people are born perhaps, you know, better able to make a slam dunk than others, some people may be born with, you know, a better ability to perfectly render, you know, a still life. Right. Um, but, um, but at the same time, just like you have to go to basketball practice every day to perfect your jump shots you also have to go to practice every day to perfect your rendering skills, right? So, so while there may be some innate talent in both of those things, there is also um, an intense need to practice and improve and perfect those skills. At the same time, though, I think um, even those who may, you know, never um, be, 
you know, have the whatever is in their brain or their eye to perfectly render that still life. Um, that's not the only way to be an artist. I think, you know, to your point, um, the the creative um, spirit and creative energy, I think, is very much in all of us. Um, and unfortunately, I think it often does get kind of trained out of kids mm-hmm. through um, formal education. Yeah. Um, I think formal education at times can be very antithetical to creativity. And so, you know, of course, there are important things that um, you learn in high school. In fact, you know, when we, um, when a student applies to CCAD, um, it may seem like, you know, oh, their high school grades don't really matter, right? Because, you know, it's all about their portfolio. Mm-hmm. If they're a great artist, you know, then who cares? But we still find that, in fact, high school GPA is one of the biggest predictors of success, even in an art and design college, because often what that's telling you is they showed up, mm-hmm. right? They had the grit mm-hmm. and the perseverance to show up and do the work. Work hard. Yeah. It doesn't right. matter whether or not they were really great at math. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what it's about. It's mm-hmm. about, did you show up to math class and turn in the work, even Commitment. if you weren't great? Yeah. yeah. Because art practice takes a lot of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of um, a lot of that time and practice. And I think um, what we are thinking about at CCAD more so now um, is the fact that the career paths for artists are um, plentiful and and diverse. Um, so in fact, um, yes, you don't, you know, we still do, you know, yes, you, 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 know, you need to learn color theory and you need to learn figure drawing and you need to learn those things. But you may not excel at all of it. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, be a dropout of, of art school um, right. or an, an unsuccessful artist um, because there are so many different um, methods to um, creating art and so many different um, channels to um, make a living as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether that's, again, through, you know, kind of local economies and mural painting or, you know, more um, sort of online social media, Instagram, et cetera. And I think what is one of the messages that we always try to get out there, especially with parents, frankly, um, you know, who may be even, you know, they might see like, well, I'm successful muralist. I don't know, like that's maybe not even a great, you know, future, right? For their, (laughs) but to say that, you know, many, again, the career paths are many. Um, We have, you know, we have plenty of, of, you know, alumni and graduates who can claim success in, in more kind of fine art artistic practices, whether again, it's um, more kind of street art, mural painting, et cetera, or more um, gallery exhibitions. But at the same time, you know, our largest major is now animation. Our second largest major is illustration, uh, you know, um, and then it's advertising graphic design. Uh, And so many of our students are in more traditional sort of design disciplines. And there are jobs out there both again in um, more that kind of freelance, uh, you know, gig economy world um, that many of our graduates are going toward by choice, not just um, being forced into, but they like having that control over their schedule and their life and what they produce. But um, our students are also finding jobs at more traditional creative um, companies, whether it's, you know, uh, a an advertising graphic design firm like mm-hmm. GSW or Ology or Summerfield mm-hmm. Advertising or, um, you know, retail, Abercrombie & Fitch, et cetera, mm-hmm. or in places where you might not immediately think like, oh, they're hiring a bunch of creatives, but, you know, nationwide. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, they're, they have a huge uh, creative department, right? Yeah. And so they're hiring our alumni. And so I think the thing that we 
like to kind of tell prospective students and parents is that you look at the landscape of um, companies and job opportunities out there. They're all hiring creatives, um, but also there are lots of opportunities, um, new opportunities to your point for um, artists and creative folks to kind of make it on their own if that's yeah. what they want to do. Yeah. And, and I think that's really wonderful, you know, and I also hear a little bit of a kind of caution, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the parental concerns and influence, which really feel very connected to kind of the generational societal stuff we've been talking about, right? right. Is uh, sometimes maybe a little too much at play, right? right. And that really what um, you know many or some of of you know the artists that are coming into your program into your school um, want to be something else right that they might just not think is really that uh, realistic mm-hmm. or honored or you know something that they'll be able to make a living or be right. successful or please their parents or mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? So it's a little bit of a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yet, you know, I don't want to ignore the realities of like, it, it's important to have right. a job and to be able to, right. um, you know, make a living and provide a nice life, a great right. life, just like, you know, your parents did for you. Right. And being able to do that and still be creative is amazing, right? Right. I mean, really, really wonderful and important that we're training um, people to do that. That this is a real option. You can yeah. go to an art school. You can um, be creative. You can love what you do, and you can be employed doing it afterwards. You know, right. it's a great thing. Let me um, just before we kind of run out of time here. I do want to just touch on the kind of mental health piece yeah. of this. You know, you and I have talked. You know, I'm very passionate about the connection between creatives and addictions. Um, You know, I'm involved in uh, Genius Recovery out in Arizona that's working Mm -hmm. on this um, artist for addicts um, component. Uh, You know, it's it's widely known. You can look, you know, uh, across, you know, history and see the connections there. And not just um, in the addiction space, but in the mental health yeah. space of being a student, being a, ch- a kid today. Right. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of what you're doing and kind of what your vision is for how we tackle that piece of, of um, you know, the college experience. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a huge thing that we're dealing with at CCAD. And I think to your point, it's coming at us from a number of different directions. So on the one hand, we are um, dealing with a generational challenge. Um, generation Z, the kind of you know, next generation after the millennials, um, they're the bulk of the students who are in college today. So Gen Z um, is, um, lots of studies and authors have talked about the fact that um, they are, you know, we're dealing with a crisis, um, really with a mental health crisis with Gen Z. Um, higher rates of stress, anxiety, depression, suicide. Um, and part of it, you know, you can pick the culprit, right? Um, there have been some convincing arguments about how a lot of it's about, um, you know, the iPhone generation and social media and and this kind of extreme um, sort of isolation that a lot of um, young folks have. Um, ironically, because of social media, it, it, in some ways it doesn't matter, right? For the the kids that are coming to us, um, it, it matters. <laughs> it doesn't matter in terms of how we're going to solve it. How you got it. there, uh, right? Right. So right. you know, so 
So students coming to us, I think, are dealing with greater mental health challenges than previous generations, period. Add on top of that, the fact that, yes, there are definitely, um, you know, some, um, some, you know, links between um, creatives and um, mental health challenges, right? So I think um, we like, we want to fight against some of the stereotypes of, you know, sort of the, the Van Gogh kind of, you know, crazy artist uh, notion. But at the same time, I think um, there is uh, that sense of, um, you know, you spend so much time as a creative, again, often a very kind of isolated activity. You are often, you know, spending your time kind of looking inward, um, you know, sort of um, producing work that's about yourself and about your feelings. And there is, there is, I think, some, you know, connection between um, those who really excel in that creative space and those who are maybe more um, sensitive to the world and, you know, in some ways, whether, and whether that manifests through addiction or through, you know, depression or anxiety. We, CCAD um, participates in a national um, survey every few years called the Healthy Minds. And it's a survey that, you know, colleges across the country participate in. So we have seen over the last, you know, decade or so, both um, increasing issues with um, depression, stress, anxiety, suicidal ideation um, amongst our student body, you know, over that decade. But consistently we see um, uh, when you look at sort of benchmarking that um, students at CCAD and other art and design colleges have higher rates of all of those things than your kind of typical college student. Um, Because again, for those reasons, because I think we do tend to have a little bit more... um, perhaps stressed out, uh, you sure. know, uh, sort of community in, mm-hmm. in art and design colleges and um, people, you know, dealing with some of those mental health challenges. So, and then the last thing I would say, the last kind of factor that comes into it is that art and design school has not done a whole lot to help that historically. So, you know, while it's true in many disciplines, in art and design college, I think there is this um, intense studio culture, which again is very wonderful in many ways, but um, also, um, you know, encourages no sleep, right? There's this 24 right. seven, you know, literally there are people who, you know, are like, you know, you get a little sleeping mat and put it under your desk in the yeah. design studio and that's where you sleep. And right. if you sleep, you know, it's for a cat nap, right? You know, you're, you know, eating cigarettes for breakfast and drinking mm-hmm. coffee all night long. And, you know, that's sort of this, this, kind of culture of what's cool in right. art school. And it's a little school. bit of a romantic thing that, yes. you know, you drink coffee, smoke cigarettes and, you know, burn right. it at both ends. Right, exactly. And you're not taking care of yourself. And so that right. added to these other stressors that are coming in is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to confront that head on at CCAD rather mm-hmm. than just, you know, sitting back and saying like, well, it's the generation or it's the art school, you know. Mm-hmm. What can we do about it? Yeah. You know, we can't solve everything, mm-hmm. but we can change some things. So um, we started doing a number of things. Um, first of all, we've started talking about this as an initiative around healthy creativity to start to um, push against some of that stereotype mm-hmm. that, you know, not it's not, it's not cool to mm-hmm. stay awake all night. And in fact, here's the scientific evidence that mm-hmm. shows you that sleeplessness is de- detrimental to the creative parts of your brain working right. properly. Right. So you want to be a better artist, go get eight hours of sleep every right. night. Um, and so- It's so great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of working on um, a venture capital model that yeah. does the same thing because you see it right. all over the place, right? right? You know, it's adapt yeah, or die and, you know, yeah. 
nobody's talking about sleep and meditation. Right. I mean, sure, it's being talked about, but then they say, well, yeah, but right now you got to really, right, 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 you know, right. it's sink or swim and, yeah. you know, um, yeah. pour gasoline on the fire and, yeah. you know, and there's like a, a badge of honor in it that's being kind of pushed, right? right? right. Um, but it's actually having the opposite effect, you know, in that world, yeah. it's like, well, why do you think that eight out of 10 companies are failing, right? right. Um, we know what's so, it's not just like the odds of being successful, yeah, maybe how right. we're going about it isn't working. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, I see, um, you know, the parallel in the academic culture and, yeah. you know, in the creative space where you're kind of maybe bringing some additional layers to it. Right. Um, it's really, really important work. And, yeah. you know, I think it's really important, not just for creatives, not just for CCAD, but I'm really inspired about kind of how we elevate this conversation in general, yeah. that it's possible that maybe you can be a leader in this space yeah. and that, you know, the entire kind of academic world can say, oh, wait a minute, um, we can we can produce healthier human beings right. who are consequently going to produce healthier work in organizations. And maybe that's how we change the world. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate what you're doing there. And I appreciate you coming here and sharing yeah. your story. And um, I see all the connection <laughs> and all the um, kind of uh, life experience that's really um, producing some uh, amazing work and you know how you are stepping into um, being a woman in leadership and not just, you know, in your role at um, CCAD, but in the community partnership and the other organizations you're involved with. Um, I think Columbus is really lucky to have you here and I'm happy to know you and have you here today. Any final thoughts that you want to share? Thank Anything you. people can Thank find you, you at? That's or great. That I mean, stuff? you can always follow me on social media. Yeah, you know? good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep, Melanie underscore corn. I think that's it. It's pretty simple. Uh, mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Gotta and, get um, that plug in. Gotta get that plug in. Follow <laughs> CCAD. There's yeah. lots happening here. And I guess the last thing I would say is that, you know, um, come get to know CCAD. I mean, mm. we're, um, you know, we're a really great organization and institution. And, you know, we're not just a college that's only there for our degree seeking students, but we have a, you know, huge breadth of um, adult and youth um, community education programs. We've got free, you know, lectures all the time and art exhibitions. And, um, you know, we're right next to the museum, right in downtown, the Discovery mm -hmm. District. So um, I hope people come and um, hang out there and be part of our community. Awesome. And come to the fashion show. And come right? to the fashion show. Right? Absolutely. That's yes. Right. Come to the fashion show Friday, May 8th. Awesome. Good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Melanie. Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Appreciate it too. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.